0: Well, I feel like I'm somewhat set up for failure this morning. We filled you with donuts and coffee. We've set you in a warm room after most of you stayed up until well past your bedtime. And I get to try to keep you awake for the next few minutes. Uh, It is truly a joy to be able to preach this morning and share the message of God's word with all of you. I trust that you had a good Christmas uh, celebrating with family or friends to remember Christ's birth. and. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm kind of happy to like be in the new year. I'm okay with Christmas songs being done. I know that's like a huge offense to many of you. Uh, it's fun to hum the tunes and think about the songs. You know, I, I'm sure, like me, many of you, probably all of us, have experienced the moments when we can remember this great tune. You know, we wake up in the morning; it's like the first thing in our head. We're humming, we're singing this tune. But there are words. I'm not exactly sure what they are. Actually, I have no idea what this song's about. Sounds neat. It'd be way more meaningful if I had some great words to go with this tune stuck in my head, right? That's frustrating, isn't it? I've been there. The words to a song actually make it much more pointed, right? It brings it to life. It helps it stick with us. And perhaps for us, sometimes our favorite songs are not because of the tune, but because of the words and the message of that song. Because it strikes a chord with my experience. It reminds me of something I need to be reminded of, or I enjoy being reminded of, of something in the past. You know, all throughout Scripture, God gives us songs. And we aren't necessarily given tunes, but what's significant is God gives us the words to these songs. And it'd be foolish for us to know the title of the song, maybe a general idea of a song, without actually knowing the words. Because then what are we singing? A song and a tune without words does us little good. We are meant, through God's word, to tell others a message. And so God has given his people a song to sing. The question is, do you know the words? It's the main idea that I want us to walk away with this morning. God gave his people a song about salvation. Do you know the words? Turn your Bible to Psalm 96. If you haven't already, this is on page 525 of the Pew Bible in front of you. If you haven't used the Bible much, it's right towards the middle. And uh, I'd encourage you to turn there. We're going to, Lord willing, be looking at these words and thinking about what do these words mean? Would you follow along as I read Psalm 96? Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord God made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. This is the reading of God's word. In Psalm 96, we see that there are four stanzas. And uh, for the most part, I'm going to try to follow those stanzas here this morning. Uh, I've got two main points that hopefully will help communicate the truth of this text. I want us to think about first, the song is about salvation. And then secondly, we're going to observe here in a few minutes, the words are about Jesus. Let's start with the song is about salvation. We're going to look at stanza one, verses one through three. We're here, the psalmist calls us to remember a song that the Lord has given to us, a song that the whole earth should be singing to him, singing to the Lord, blessing his name, giving glory to him. And what is that song? It is a song of salvation that we proclaim his salvation from day to day. Right off the start, we are given this idea of a song of salvation that we should be singing, that the whole earth, everyone, should be singing to God. It is about a salvation that declares his wondrous works, that is to his glory. Blessing his name. Now, this psalm, Psalm 96, is actually used very specifically by David himself. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we're given the history and the story of David who recently had conquered the Philistines and is now singing this psalm in the midst of a few others as he brings the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom back to Jerusalem. Some of you might recall that this is a time in which he is dancing, frolicking in front of the troops, rejoicing that this ark is returning to Jerusalem. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, is really angry at him about this. That's the context in which this psalm is used, rejoicing that God has given his people victory over their enemies. He's given them salvation. And in fact, his presence in the ark is returning to Jerusalem. To be with God's people. This is the message that this psalm finds its context. And yet I want to press us right here from the beginning that this message of salvation goes far beyond what David and the Israelites were experiencing. This message of salvation was something promised from earlier than even David himself. Now to Adam and Eve who suffered pain and the anguish of sin, of a broken world that broke relationships, and quite literally broke this earth, bringing a curse. And to them was promised a deliverer who would bring salvation, who would restore mankind's relationship with God and with one another and with earth, that earth itself would be restored. And that deliverer wasn't anyone who was before David. And it wasn't King David himself, and it wasn't David's immediate son, but it was promised to David's seed. And just as we spent the last few weeks thinking about Christmas and leading up to rejoicing in Christ's birth, is a reminder that David's son is Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who came to this earth to bring salvation, to restore what was broken, A message of salvation that should be sung to the nations. That Jesus lived a perfect and holy and sinless life. And yet he died on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin that you and I deserve. And he died that death for us. Oh, but he didn't stay dead. Yes, he died to defeat sin. And yet he rose from the grave to proclaim victory over death. Itself. See, this is the message of salvation that even here in the psalm we are reminded to be singing. The salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ died for us and if we are to repent of sin, to turn away from it and to trust in him, we can know that salvation and we too can rejoice with hope and confidence in a broken world. This is the message of salvation you and I are meant to sing. My friends, I hope this brings joy to your heart and your soul this morning. To start out in a text here right at the beginning of the new year, and to be reminded, God has given his people salvation. He has done a wondrous work, and we are meant to respond by singing to the Lord and blessing his name and singing to the nations that they might hear this message of salvation that it is Jesus Christ who has saved us. If you haven't trusted in the Lord, if you haven't believed this message, today is the day to hear this message, to turn from sin and to trust in him. But those of you that are here who believe this message, oh, that this would be a wonderful reminder to us of what we've been saved from and what we proclaim with our mouths that it would well up in us affections for the Lord to glorify Him and to tell others, the Lord has saved me and He can save you too if you were to trust in Him. Jonathan Edwards writes in his book, The Religious Affections, the true saint, when under great spiritual affections from the fullness of his heart, is ready to be speaking much of God in His glorious perfections and works, and of the beauty of Christ, and the glorious things of the gospel. Brother and sister, this should be our natural response to what God has done. Have you lost your excitement of salvation because life is overwhelming, because life is tiring? My friends, remind yourself of this salvation day after day, to rest in the gloriousness of God's salvation of his people. It transforms everything about our life. Everything. God has given us this salvation, and we now have the opportunity to sing to the world. Remind yourself daily of your salvation. Preach the gospel to yourself. It will strengthen you day after day to continue on. And yet I can stand here and tell you, remind yourself of salvation. But if you don't think about the words of salvation and what that song is, it can become meaningless. How has God saved you? What has he saved you from? And this psalm is going to continue on to tell us, hey, think about the Lord. Think about Jesus. It is not just that this is a song about salvation. This is a song that gives us words that are about Jesus. So my second point, the words are about Jesus. We're gonna look at the final three stanzas of this psalm and reflect on what are we told about Jesus? Hopefully as we read through this psalm, it stood out to you very quickly. The word Lord in all caps is used many, many times, 11 times in 13 verses. That should be significant to us. This psalm is not about you and me. Who is it about? The Lord. The Lord Jesus himself. And I want to give us three words to remember about Jesus as we walk through these stanzas. The first of which is that Jesus is greater. Look at the second stanza, verses four through six. Oh, we are told that the Lord is great and that he is highly praised. Oh, but how great is this Lord? Oh, he is greater than all gods. Any idols that you and I can dream up and imagine, oh, God is greater than them. He is the greatest in the universe. And how are we reminded of that? Oh, just look up. Just look up to the splendor of the heavens, the majesty that is before him at his feet, is the majesty of the heavens that is far above our head, is at Jesus' feet because He created. Jesus is greater because He is the Creator. And John chapter one reminds us of this: the One who came to save us is the One who created. And so we sing a song that is about Jesus, who is greater than any God, and any idol. Anything else in this life that we think might have power over us. See, idols are things that we create, and we create them by either fearing them or giving them more value than we do to God. Or we fear them more than we fear God, or we give them more value than we give to God. And so consider in your own heart, what are things that perhaps you have made idols? That you worship because you fear them. Because you value them more than you do your Lord. I, I think a simple illustration of this, which some of you are not going to appreciate, is the fact that you and I, pretty much all alike, give power to something that does not have power over us. Spiders. Right? There are tiny little insects with eight legs that show up in your kitchen and you're standing on the countertop screaming about a spider. Why? I really, in this room of a few hundred people, how many of us actually know someone who has died of a spider? I'm guessing none, and if you have, I'm really sorry. There, (laughs) there, there are spiders that can kill people, but it's very rare. And for those who are poisonous, We have antivenom and there are ways that we can be saved from spiders. But the fact is, I could wager that all the spiders in your life, you could step on and end them immediately. And yet you fear them. Why? Because in your mind, you've given that spider more power than it has. It is less than you, it has less power than you, it holds nothing over you, and yet you are fearful of it. And you do things in life that are not rational, that do not make sense because of a tiny spider. But what in our lives as Christians have we given more authority and power to that in reality has no power and authority over us whatsoever. I think for some of us, it could be another person, a family member, or perhaps a boss or a client that we live in fear of every day, of what we think they can do to us, or the power that they have over us. Or perhaps it is something as simple as money or the lack of it or the frustration of sickness and disease that we can't control. And it seems in everything we can imagine in this life that those things have power over us and they control us. But my friends, they don't. Because Jesus is greater. He is greater than any idol that we can create and imagine that we think we need to worship to make life work. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, can we submit those things to God's control? They're under his control. He is over them. Can we humble ourselves and submit to the Lord's control in my own life? And therefore, to approach life to say, yep, there are things that are terrifying in my life. I cannot control them. But I can trust that Jesus does. Why? Because he's given me a song about salvation. He has already defeated the greatest foe I could ever have, sin and death. And if I can trust him for that, I can trust him in all these other areas to have power over all other gods. And so don't let the world say of you, You say Jesus saved you, but you clearly don't think you can be saved from this earthly thing. Look to God's creation and remember, yeah, Jesus created this. Jesus is greater. The second word of this song is that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy, and we're going to see this in verses 7 through 9. Here we are told to give to the Lord, to ascribe. All right, this is mentioned in, in, in a couple different ways. Uh, give to the Lord, ascribe to Him, you families of the peoples. All right, all people on the earth. Give to Him. What are we giving to Him? Uh, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to Him the glory of His name. And bring, give an offering. Enter His courts and give worship to this Lord. Jesus is worthy of our praise, and of our worship. Here we are told that Jesus is the one who sits in his courts, on the throne, in the place of authority, of majesty. As we worship him, it is in the splendor of his holiness that sets him high and above all of us. He is perfect and worthy of our worship and of our praise and of our lives. It reminds me of the text in Romans 12, where we are told to make ourselves a living sacrifice to give to the Lord. It is honorable and it is worthy to do such a thing because he is worthy of such praise. But I wonder how many of us enter his courts without settling our hearts on his worthiness to receive our praise. I mean, none of us would dare just walk into the president's Oval Office or perhaps the king's castle as if we deserve to be there and as if we can say whatever we want to that person in authority. None of us would dare do that. But how lightly do you and I treat our time in the word and entering into prayer before the Lord, the holy king of the universe who sits on his throne oh, it doesn't mean that we come into his courtroom groveling and fearful that he will strike us. No, we come in recognizing he's the one who's brought salvation. I owe him everything. I want to worship him and come with a heart of humility. And so if Jesus is holy and perfect and is worthy of every praise, do we dare enter his holy presence? with a stench of sin on us, as if it doesn't matter. That we would take the time before we go to the Lord in prayer and in worship to repent of sin, to recognize where we have fallen short of the Lord's glory, and to seek His throne humbly, to bring an offering before the Lord. That we would be ones, we would be ones who would be quick to repent of sin as we come and draw near to the Lord. Now, how do we do this? Is it just setting up a regimen of saying, well, I, I need to repent now, I gotta repent now, I gotta repent now? No, let me encourage you actually, the way that we walk before the Lord into his courts, knowing that we can be there and yet doing it humbly, oh, is because we have studied him and we know him and we have made him great in our own hearts. So my question for you is, how can you in the coming year, as we start a new year, grow in your affection of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think there's a lot of practical ways. One is, I know a number of you read books, great. Maybe this year's like, pick one book that is about Jesus Christ himself, that you can rejoice in what he's done for us. Maybe you're like an avid reader and you need to like set a higher goal. And once a month, you need to read a book that reminds you of the work that Jesus Christ has done. Books like Knowing God or Rejoicing in Christ or Desiring God, right? These are all books that we have on our bookstall and in the church library. Did you know we have a church library? You can access it. You can get books for free. You got to bring them back. But you can read these books and be edified to grow in your heart's desire to know the Lord and to rejoice in his goodness, to rejoice in his salvation, and to say, yes, the Lord is on his throne. And the more that I know him, the more I can humbly come before his throne, praising him, glorifying him because he is worthy. But not just to read books. We should read books and then go talk to other people. Talk to fellow Christians. Remind them of God's goodness to you of Christ's majesty. It's part of what we should be doing as Christians. It's telling one another, reminding one another the truths of the gospel. So go read a good gospel-centered book and then go tell somebody about it. Encourage them to worship the Lord as the one who is worthy. But also for us to take that time in prayer and to be in his courtroom, to be before his throne, giving to him the glory that is due his name not just requesting for help, yes, we should lay our requests before the Lord, but to go into His courtroom singing His praises daily. Would you commit to opening your day and ending your day in prayer to the Lord, to glorifying Him? We practice these spiritual disciplines not just for our own good, but in humility before the God who is do these things, that he would receive the honor and the praise due his name. Because Jesus is greater than everything in this universe. And he is the king who sits on the throne and therefore is worthy of our praise. But thirdly, in the last stanza, Jesus is just. Look at verses 10 through 13. Here we are told to proclaim to the nations that the Lord reigns, that the world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. Those are really key terms, right? Kind of even reminding us of the previous two stanzas that Jesus reigns. He's a king on the throne and he has established this world and it will not be shaken. And yet I think for most of us, the next phrase is what strikes us as out of place. He judges The people's fairly. Why are we talking about God's judgment all of a sudden? Well, I love the next two verses where we are reminded that the heavens and the earth and the sea and the fields and the trees are all compelled to look forward to the Lord's coming because He is the one who is going to judge. Now, for you and I, we most often think about God's judgment as a fearful and terrifying thing. And yet here we see creation shouting for joy because the Lord is the one who judges. Oh, but he judges fairly. And he is the one who judges with righteousness and with faithfulness. Michael Reeves puts it in his book, Rejoicing in Christ, he puts it this way. The earth rejoices because Jesus comes to it. Why? Because the one who does not judge like any, he is the one who does not judge like any other. He's utterly just and good. His judgment is all about removing evil, wickedness, and injustice. Today, the creation groans under the weight of our sin with all its piled up death and cruelty. And his judgment means liberation from those things. See, this is why it is a joyful thing that the Lord is returning to judge because he will judge fairly and justly. He will be the God who judges even this world and bringing it back to restoration. It is not us who are going to accomplish the justice that is needed in this world. We haven't done it in salvation and we're not gonna do it in all the other areas of life. Does that mean we don't seek justice? No, we should. We should. Too many times you and I get caught up in the fact that we think we can accomplish all the justice needed that this world will be a great and perfect place to live. Uh, I don't want to be like a late Scrooge to Christmas and, and the beginning of a new year, but in 2023, everything is not going to be perfect. There will be injustices, and many of those will be against you and me. Are we called in this text to go resolve all those injustices? No. Our attention is drawn to the one who promises by his faithfulness and through his righteousness, who is worthy to be the judge. Our attention is drawn to him that he will make things right. He will make all things right. And if we don't cry that out, the earth itself will be the one that shouts Enjoy that he is coming back, that he will return and restore all things. And so we remind ourselves through this psalm that Jesus is just, and that makes all the difference because he is the one who can save us and has saved us through his righteousness and through his faithfulness. He has called us to himself. See, this song of salvation reminds us that Jesus is just and will restore all that is unjust, and he will right every wrong. There are no rulers on this earth that can establish the justice that we need. There's no ruler that can make the earth firmly established like Jesus here in verse 10. And so don't get caught up in making sure we have all the right people in the Supreme Court. Those judges will only get us so far. Don't get caught up in having all the right people in authority as if that's going to fix the world. Friends, the one who is in authority is already on the throne. Are you trusting in him or the rulers of this world? Because when we sing a song of salvation, it's not about us saving ourselves or our friends saving us. It is about Jesus and Jesus alone saving us. And so it calls our attention back to the fact that we can be okay with injustice in this world. And that injustice should serve as a brutal and harsh reminder that this world is broken and that Jesus is coming again, which is the joy of our life. He is coming again to restore all things. Praise him. And so throughout this text that is a wonderful gift to call our attention to the joy of salvation is to us to be reminded that there are particular words that we need to know. Do you know them? Do you know the words of salvation, of this salvation song? I'm actually going to invite the musicians to come up. We're going to conclude our service in song. And while they're coming up, I'm going to remind you on the slide that Jesus is greater. Oh, friends, Jesus is worthy, and Jesus is just. And that changes everything about the song that we sing to the watching world. And so put your faith and your trust in him as we take opportunity to sing with our mouths, even in this moment, that God is on the throne, that he is the one who holds creation in his hands, who knows all things and has died for our sins and is the one who now reigns forever. And so stand and sing, Behold Our God.